So as we come to the very end of the first missionary journey, the thing that I'm going to focus on today is actually three simple thoughts that kind of pull this together. I'm going to lay those out at the beginning and hopefully we'll see those unpack. The first thing I, that we're going to see that pervaded the whole missionary journey, but I could actually stretch it out and say, this is what's been going on since Pentecost. Since the day that the church began in earnest, filled with the Spirit, we see these things. And the first thing is that there is a Godward worldview in all things. The second thing that we're going to see in this is that God's Word is proclaimed in all places. And the third thing that we're going to see is God's work among the nation. So as is often the case, and I remind us of this, the Bible is God's word, we oft call it, because it is first and foremost about God. I want to remind us, we, sometimes it, it, it slips from our mind, especially the prevailing age in which we live, we think it's all about us. And so we'll read a promise God gave to some unique individual in the Old Testament and we'll pretend he was talking to us. You know, And maybe if you walk around your neighbor's yard Enough time silently and then blow some trumpets at the end, their wall will fall down. Or not, because that promise was given to Joshua and the children of Israel, not to us. But we remi we're reminded of this. In the beginning of the Bible, how does it begin? Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no mention of man at that point. Man happens at the very end of the creation order and story. And then as you come to the very end of the Bible, it's again, amen, Lord, come quickly. It, it, there, it's sort of a book-ended idea of the God-centered focus of the word. God isn't hesitant at times, even among the children of Israel, to tell them, not for your sake... Not for your sake, but for my sake, I will do this. How will I allow for my name to be mistreated? My name to be defamed and despised among the nations. And so we see God's absolute commitment to himself. And he made himself known. And in the person of Christ, you have the greatest and most glorious manifestation of God that there is. And I want us to see this as I begin to unpack this. A Godward world view in all things. We've got a little piece of it even this morning as Paul is laying out his plans for what he's hoping to do in terms of travel and when he might stay in Ephesus and he might go on to Corinth. And he ends with what words? If God permits. If God allows. The same thing we're reminded in the book of James. I'm going to go here and there. I'm going to transact and do a profit. And then I'm going to come back and it says, all such thing is arrogant and evil. You ought to said, if the Lord wills, we will live and prosper. Lord's, and I want us to see this again in Jesus' un unfolding here in the collection. It says this in chapter and they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now, we'll unpack some of that a little bit further on book back when we get there. But it is of note, note that it says elders, plural, 
in every singular. So each church is supposed to have elders. You know, this, we live in a world where something is basic suddenly been cast off. And, and you know, is established to be the prince or pastor or whatever you want to call him. Above all the others, and everyone thinks he himself almost walks on water. He doesn't. He steps out of the boat, dropping. He's just a man like everybody else. And one of the ways that, that, that men would, it would all be kept in check. And that there would remain but one who is the great shepherd of the sheep. And a bunch of others who served as shepherding the sheep. And so eyes didn't get fixed on one earthly man. They remained fixed on him who is seated at the right hand of God. He who remains in all ages and in all groups and in all denominations, the head of the church. If there is any place where Christ is not the head of the church, it's not a church. It's something else. And, and, and so we see here, they appointed elders. And again, it notes this. Uh, they did so with, with prayer and fasting. And I'm just going to note some of these things in quick passing. It, it, noting, if you were to go back at the beginning of this missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Uh, the, the combination of these things combined further, if you go back into the Old Testament, uh, fasting and prayer might even involve at times clothing yourself with sackcloth, sackcloth, covering your head with dust and ashes, which is not something we oft do, but it presented a particular picture. A picture that apart from you, I have nothing. Food and clothing, the sackcloth and the fasting was to indicate that apart from you, I have nothing. And even a certain sense in which I can demand nothing. I am in need. Jesus wanted to make even that simple point clear when he gave his exemplary prayer. He said, give us this day. Our daily bread. We know that, don't we? Jesus was, again, giving that. Uh, now, listen. So that we know our dependence on God for our daily prayer. The temptation of some might be to think this. I've got two loaves sitting there in the cupboard. I've got plenty of food in the freezer. I don't need to pray that part. I've got enough food for today, tomorrow in the next day. But the sense of it is. Why do you say. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not, it's, it's not simply to inform God of your need. It is that we keep clear in our minds. Every day. Every morsel. Everything. Comes from God. And that we are dependent on him. Because now God has not done this. But when the children of Israel thought they could do their things their own way. And they gathered up a little extra. They, they gathered up and they were not supposed to keep it overnight. What happened to the manna? 
There's a part of me that thinks, if God was pleased, if we did not uh, approach what we have with thankfulness and dependence, wouldn't we learn quickly if the next morning it was eaten up with worms? Oh, boy. (laughs) But he's merciful and patient with us. But we ought to learn our absolute dependence upon him. And again, with with that, sackcloth and ashes, uh, uh, dust and ashes comes from that phrase all the way back in in Genesis that says, I am but dust and ashes. Because what, what, what was man made of? Dust and God breathed into them life. It is saying, I have nothing and I am nothing apart from you. We actually, yeah, we'll go, you can go with me if you want to briefly. Daniel chapter 9 is a section where he, he mentions something of this. I'll begin in verse 3. It says this in Daniel 9 verse 3. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord and made confession, saying, O great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him, who keeps it and keep his covenant. Then it, so it starts by saying, you, great and awesome, faithful. Verse 5, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned aside. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants whom you sent. Verse 7, to you, O Lord belongs righteousness but to us open shame verse 8 to us O lord belongs open shame on because we have sinned against you verse 9 to the lord belongs mercy and forgiveness therefore the 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 fuller picture of prayer with fasting is what you are everything i'm nothing you give everything i deserve Nothing. We are utterly dependent on you. And so when Paul and Barnabas were were sent out, it was sent out with this confidence. They are utterly dependent on God as they go. How long they will live. Whether they will prosper or they will encounter persecution and pain. All of that is in God's hands. And indeed, all of that did a journey, did And so, in see that dependence, but in three point elders in all of the churches, it says with prayer and they commend them to the Lord in whom they believe. I love that because the confidence and hope is his confidence in these no Demas who brought on with him training up certain people that he trained and even John will end up writing in, in 3 John uh, People will take their eyes, committed them to 
His hope was in the Lord. Then that he would even more than that, in the presence of these men, he's committing them to the Lord. There are times they may not be there, the apostles. In, in a very short generation, they will have all died. And if the leaders of the churches felt their only accountability was to those apostles, once those apostles are gone, then where's the accountability? But what is being established very clear from day one? Apostles spoke on behalf of the Lord. They gave the commands of the Lord, but the people did not answer to them. The commands did not originate with these men. They originated with the Lord. And the one to whom these individuals who are serving must answer is who? The Lord God. And that was clear in their minds. They were committed to the Lord. Our hope that they would be, be, remain faithful is to the Lord. And for you, as you serve, you do so before the Lord. That's so helpful. And I encourage this all along. One of the ways that we continue to remember that what we call theology is not obscure and not distant. When we speak about big things like omnipresence. God is everywhere. Omniscience. God knows all things. He sees all things. He knows all things. Well, well, that's great theology, but how does that affect my daily living? Uh, it ought to. Because you can go uh, do something secretly in the corner of your closet. You can drive to a deserted parking lot and turn off the lights and, and do some wrong things. And maybe nobody else will know or see. But you are doing so right in the visible, clear presence of God. But it's dark. Even the darkness is at light as light to him. And so th this sense of, of all-encompassing Godward reality. We're commended to God. We answer to God. Everything is his Look at what it says down in chapter 14, verse 26, because it reminds us of this. They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended by the grace of God to the work that they fulfilled. So all along, even the, the hope that they will have some form of success in sharing the gospel as they go. What is the hope rooted in? The grace of God, not in the effectiveness and skill of these men. It's so important to note that. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't take much to remember. Uh, there's no reason for men to boast. Way back when Balaam was trying to make his way to where he was going to give a prophecy against the children of Israel. What did God do? He enabled a donkey to see what Balaam couldn't see. And he enabled a donkey, it says in 1 Peter, to rebuke him. So listen, there is no place for pride among the people who serve God. Because if God can use a donkey, then he can use even me and even you. And he can grant us beyond our seeming skill set. 
And the whole point isn't. We have, you know, hopefully most of us aren't because of that event keeping a little donkey in our home and patting it every time we walk by in awe of the talking donkey. We don't do that because we know, okay, it wasn't the donkey by his own skill and wit that alone was the one donkey in history who figured out human communication. Did he? No, it was a divine enablement. And that's the same thing Paul says. God has been pleased not through the wisdom of man, but, but through the folly of what we preach to save. So we're dependent on, on him. And these things come. Who is sufficient for these things? He oft refers to himself. We are but servants of Christ. We are but earthen vessels. Which is something that didn't hold much value in that society. You weren't silver. You weren't gold, you weren't bejeweled, just earthen vessels. Amen? And so this is, again, it, it, it keeps this. And in verse 27, which we'll get to this, uh, the second half of it at the very end, it says this, and when they arrived back in Antioch, they gathered the church to, together and the, they declared all that God had done with them. See, I love that. What did they, they didn't say, this is how many people we saved. This is how many people we baptized. We did this and we... No, the, again, the firm and clear focus is what? They declared to the people what God had done with them. Thankful for their role, but they realized God did it. And the same God who did it through them could have done it through another or others. Even as he did through Apollos, through Cephas, and through a multitude, even as God is doing today. People have the tendency, even in his passing, to, to look back on the world famous crusader Billy Graham and try to say, can you imagine how many people that man saved I said, yes, I can. None. Zero. Because no man has ever saved anyone else. God saves. And we know this, but still our human tendency is to give the credit to the individual. God help us with that. We are told simple and clear things that you may know these verses, and I hope you do. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So someone who bears much fruit, do they have grounds for boasting? No, because what does it say? For apart from me, you can do... Nothing's a pretty strong word, Right? It's not apart from me, you can do little. It's apart from me with regard to actually pleasing God, you can do nothing. To impress men, you can do that. That's not as hard. Tell them what they want to hear. Wear what they like to wear. Say what they want to hear. 
Make much of them. John chapter 19 verse 11 says this. Jesus speaking to Pilate. As Pilate thought he has the authority to put him to death. What does Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Just, just there is constantly in the scriptures this Godward worldview. You can point to anyone at any place at any time and say, you know what? Apart from God, you can do nothing. Apart from God, you cannot stand. Apart from God, you cannot breathe. You cannot open your eyelids. The simplest things that we think take absolutely no effort. Apart from God, that doesn't happen. We, not to be taken for granted. You would have nothing, no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Speaking of God, it says in Acts 17, it says of him that he is not served by human hands as if or as though he needed anything. And I fear that because sometimes we say that about a famous missionary, a famous peach preacher or even writer from the past. Oh, God would have never accomplished these things were it not for that man. Oh, you know, I mean, God helped him, but he was a special tool, is it? You know, the, the, the whole thing uh, about it is, listen, you, you, you give men the best tools that they can have. And they still can't build what God can build. And he does it and can do it without tools. You're probably aware that he made the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. How many tools did he use? How much sweat of his brow was engaged? What is it? He spoke and it came to be. Got to, I want us to understand this, this divide. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Listen, since he himself gives to all men, all men, breath and everything. That's incredibly comprehensive, isn't it? No breath, no life. So anyone who's alive, it is only by God. And then anything else that a living man has, gets, accomplishes, achieves. Everything comes from God. So then, are you saying when all is said and done on the last day... There will be no praise ascribed to men. I don't know. There will be no praise ascribed to men. Because all glory belongs to God. Colossians 1 reminds us of this. For by him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him he's before all things and in him all things hold together he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the first from born from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent 
So when you think about that, listen, someone says, I think you've got too great of an emphasis on God in your church. You can't do that. You can't have too great of an emphasis. You, you act as if Christ is our all in all. That's not acting. That is absolutely intentional. Christ is our all in all. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we have nothing. And indeed, everything that we do, we want to do it for his glory. And that's what it tells us right in uh, Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. And 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we can see both at the close of the missionary journey, at the start of the missionary journey. Throughout the ministry of Christ, throughout the ministry of the apostles, there is one thing that is absolute and unwavering, and that is a God word, a God first, a God foremost worldview. Second thing that we see in the passage is a commitment to God's word in all places. In Acts chapter 14, verse 5, in the section we're looking at today, 1425, it says, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Backing up to chapter 14, verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city. And we actually see the same thing. We'll back it up again to the days of the early church. Acts 242 says what they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the apostles doctrine and prayers the word of God as delivered through his authoritative apostles predominated in the early church as they begin to go out and 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 serve the the early church leaders as that church begins to grow what is their commitment mentioned in Acts chapter 6 as they round up men to help the distribute funds. It says this in Acts 6 2. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word in order to wait on tables. This is, you know, in terms of where our heart is, it's always God first. In terms of our practical practice in the church, it's the word of God first. I oft say this, you know, as sometimes a simple measuring stick. It's a little bit frightening when a, when a group gathers together and they got two hours of singing and 15 minutes of God's word. And sometimes they get, I, I, there's places that go, get so inspired by their singing, they say, you know what? We're not even going to have a sermon today. We're just going to spend the whole time in worship. Brothers and sisters, one of the most deepest and profound times of our worship is in the hearing of God's word. In the receiving of it, our hearts are brought low. He is lifted up. Wrong ideas and worldly distractions are, are moved away and our eyes are fixed where they ought to be by the living word of God. 
Oh God, help us that we stop calling only this and that worship. All of the true Christian's life is to be an expression of worship. Going back to what we said moments ago, that includes whatever you do in word or deed. It includes whenever you eat or drink, everything done in thankfulness to God, in submission to God, in recognition to God, in joy for who He is. Listen to what it says. Moving forward, so Acts 2, the commitment to preaching the word. In Acts 6, verse 7, it says, and the word of God continued to increase. Acts chapter 8, verse 14, they'd gone down to Samaria, and it says, when Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. I like that because we often will say in our modern way of speaking, they received Jesus. They received Jesus as their personal savior. We'll say it like that, which you never actually see that phrase in the scripture, do you? Do you ever see anywhere where it says they received Jesus as their personal Savior? Uh, now, Jesus is our Savior personally and individually. So I don't want to disparage that as much. But if you have not heard the gospel faithfully declared from the word of God, he's not your Savior. It is through the gospel that he saves you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So if there's no hearing of the word of God, there's no saving. It's pretty clear when you read Romans 10. And so what do we have to do? Speak the word of God. What is their commitment throughout the book of Acts? And I'm not even done. Look with me in Acts 11.1. 1. The apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. See, I love that because uh, some people will say, well, well, I don't want all that the word of God teaches. I just want the not go to hell part. Uh, you know, I want the go to heaven part. I don't want to get it. You got to change. You got to turn from. You got to follow after. You, uh, you, you to deny your cross. Take, uh, deny yourself. Take up your cross. What I want is the heaven. All right. So I receive heaven. I receive that. Well, they received the word of God, which means they're not picking and choosing. Whatever is taught as the word of God, you know what God's people say? Uh-huh. Yes. Amen. That is what we believe. That's one of the ways that, that it tells us over in 1 John. It says, you will know who is of God and who is of the devil. As an apostle, John said, whoever is of God listens to us a clear distinctive if somebody says no, no no yeah i mean i see that but yeah i don't believe that if you don't believe that you've not received the word of god if you don't receive the word of god do you really think you ever received god i mean jesus was even quite clear as he was the word become flesh he who receives me receives the one, the one who has sent me he who doesn't receive me does not accept the one who has sent me. In the same sense as Christ was the living word, he has given us and established his living word by the authority of his person. And if someone says, uh-uh, 50%. Yeah, there's no 50% saved. It is a beautiful all or nothing. Acts 12, 24 but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
I love the way that's phrased because we, we would tend to say, and not wrong with it, uh, the church grew in number, more believed and followed. But here it chose to say it in this way, and I love it, the word of God increased and multiplied. More and more people, and, and I, I say this, you know, became absolutely overwhelmed with, I'm not, I'm not going to use the word infected because that's not the right sense, but the word of God came upon them, pervaded their being, and now they see everything anew by the grace of God that's been poured out on them. Acts chapter 13, verse 5, as they begin their missionary journey, they arrive at Salamis, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogue to the Jews. Acts 13, verse 7, as Paulus, the governor, an intelligent man, what did he summon them? Because it says he sought to hear the word of God. Oh, that that was the case. That we would bring, be able to feel confident to bring people, that everybody who goes to churches could be confident if they bring people to church with them. I know this. They're going to hear the word of God. They're not going to just hear uh, stories about that man's life and that man's experience and that man's kids and, that, and all, whatever it may be. They're going to hear from the word of God. And that's going to be clear and powerful. It says, uh, again, if you were to read Acts 13, 16 to 41, the whole thing is an expert. Nearly the whole thing the next Sunday. said this to those people who rejected it. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Then, of course, we have this sad reality. In 2 Timothy, Paul says these words to Timothy in chapter 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living and dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. This is it. You're facing problems. There's false teachers coming into the church. Here's the answer to what you do every time without wavering. From beginning to end through the centuries, preach the word. Then he gives a warning to Timothy that he only experienced a sliver of in his time. That really comes down on our time. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off after myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, I know we're tempted to say that is a perfect prophecy of our age. You know what? That prophecy has been fulfilled in many ages before ours. It is profoundly existent also in our age. And people like that. You know, just a, just a verse here or there. But not a commitment to God's word. But listen to the way that Paul says it as his own understanding in 2 Corinthians 2.17. We are not like so many peddlers of the word of God. But as men of sincerity, we speak as Commissioned by God. In the sight of God. We speak in Christ. So who, who has appointed them? 
who has called us and appointed us to the service He's granted each of us? God. Everything we do is in the direct sight of God. And we do so by grace, striving to be faithful in Christ. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is the church that does not preach the word. Woe is the believer that does not share the gospel of grace that they have come to know with those that God brings across their path. May he move us to do so more and more. Thirdly, God's work among the nations. It says this in chapter 14, verse 27. When they arrived, they gathered the church and they declared that all that God had done with them, and listen, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So I'm going to unpack this, this idea just a little bit, opened a door of faith, because the phrasing, the way this phrasing would work in the language of their day carries a little different sense than maybe it would have in our day. For example, uh, the easiest way that we would think of it in a modern sense is um, I could open a door. And then your thought would be what? Well, he opened a door. Now it's kind of up to you whether you're going to go in and out of the door. What's going to happen? So great the door's open, but all that has done is make something possible. It hasn't accomplished anything. Well, I'm, I want to show you that, that the sense of this is far stronger. The same word opened, uh, if, you, if you have your Bible, go to John 9. Because this word for opened is, is often used to, to, to speak of something that's not merely presented an opportunity, but actually accomplished something. In John chapter 9, verse 10, remember... There had been a man that was born blind. Jesus had come to him. He had spit into the dirt. He had formed mud. He had put it upon the man's eyes and told him to go wash. So that man had actually not seen Jesus. He then went and he washed. And then he had sight. Correct? Well, listen to the way that the scripture explains this. John 9, verse 10. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? Now, don't be confused for a single moment and think, Well, no wonder the guy was blind. He never opened his eyes. Well, it would be hard to see with your eyes closed all the time. But, but the, the sense is not that he had never opened his eyes. It's just when he opened them, he couldn't see. They didn't function. Which is why, go down with me to verse uh, 14 and 15, still John 9. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened his eyes. The Pharisees asked again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and what? I washed, and now I see. So two phrases are there. One way of saying it is, he opened his eyes. The other way of saying it is, now he sees. Still in John 9, to get, you know, to unpack it, verse 21. 
he now sees the parent speaking of it. How he does not know. We know who opened his eyes. So when you come to a blind and you open their eyes, you know what it means? Great, you gave. And you come to his head, their trespasses and sin. Open, the phrase there is faith. They now. It really means God opens of sin. Men are separated from God. Christ through faith in him. And so the, the door is opened in a sense, not randomly, everybody choose to go through. It's opened individually, whereby faith in Christ we have access to God. This is the way John Gill says it. So, so useful. Going beyond the ideas of merely an opportunity to speak and an opportunity to hear. He says, God had opened the mouth of the ministers to preach to them. He opened their hearts to attend unto it and to receive it. For it may be understood of him giving them the grace of faith by which they received Christ and his gospel into their hearts. Let me unpack this a little bit more. We see the same idea unfolded in uh, Acts chapter 16, which we will soon. It says this in verse 14. One uh, who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. With regard even to the apostles themselves at the end of Christ's life. In Luke 24 verse 5 it says he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So this opening of the door is giving access by the opening of the heart to believe and receive. The opening of the mind to understand. That's why Jesus says in John 6:44, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me Draws him. So you can't simply nonsensically say. He opened the door. Now what's going to happen? If that's your way of thinking about this open door. Nobody goes through. Until the father draws them through. The language in this passage is stronger. When it says he opened a door. It means he was giving. A multitude of individual Gentiles. Access to his throne of grace by faith in Christ. It's glorious in its accomplishment. In uh, Luke chapter 10, it says it this way. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. So how many does that leave that know the son? Only the Father rightly understands Him. And no one knows the Father except the Son. So how many does that leave? It would be zero, but then it goes on to say, uh, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, to manifest Him, to open it up to Him. 
that they might see. Oh, so powerful. Which is why Romans 9, 16 reminds us it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In Acts chapter 26, and here the King James renders it best in terms of the subjunctive. It says this, as he sent Paul, this was the purpose in his ministry, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. What? So what's going to happen? The grace of God through the gospel from the preaching is going to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. That's glorious, isn't it? Powerful. And, and really, uh, to, to get a sense uh, of this, it says this. And I go back to uh, what it says about the door. He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, to, we'll, we'll sort of end on this point. Go with me to John chapter 10. Because this is one of the amazing mysteries of Christ. Do you know who is the door? Christ himself is the door. And this is what's really confusing at times for us. Because if, if you read through Hebrews, you're reading. And at one point, Christ is the king. At another point, he's the new lawgiver. Another point, he's the prophet. Another point, he's the priest. And he's both the priest... And he's the sacrifice that's being offered. And you're thinking, what is this? <laughs> he's everything. And then here in John 10, he's the door. And he's the shepherd that leads them out the door. What? How is he doing all of this? Yes, this is the plan of God. I also wanted to note this. It said, he, in Acts 14, he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It is the work of God. Here in John chapter 10, which is where we're going to sort of end out our time this morning. In John chapter 10, he says those powerful words early on. He says this, or it says this in the beginning. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way is a thief or a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd. Now get ready for the, the confusion. The shepherd is the door. And the door is the shepherd. They're both Christ. Uh, to him, the gatekeeper opens. In a sense, if we want to tie this in with what we're looking at over there, over in uh, Acts. The gatekeeper is God. Or is Christ. The Father sent the Son. The son is not only the door, the way in which there is entrance in, but he is the door in which there is entrance. But he's not merely just a door. He, as the shepherd, is going to make sure for the, the door is utilized. Because look what it says. To him the gatekeeper opens, verse 3. And the sheep hear his voice. And I always want to remind you of this. He doesn't simply say, come to me sheep, all will come. He could. Okay? And that's the message that 
be preached. Come all who will come. But there is a spiritual work of Christ that is transpiring when we give the gospel call. Those who are his sheep given to him by the Father are hearing his call. And we're giving a general call. And to his, he's giving a specific call. And it says it this way, so we know the personal aspect of it. He calls his own sheep by name. Not just the random open here, sheepy, sheepy, sheepy. But Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm coming to your house today. John, James, come follow me. I mean, this is, and each of our names at a certain point. He, listen, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. But listen to the way that it says it. And this is also what's confusing. He leads them out. But what if some of them don't follow? Yeah, true. But all that he is called by name and leads out, what does the very next verse tell us? I'm still here and I'm at verse 4. When he, John 10, 4. When he has brought out all his own. You know what's going to happen? They're all coming. Why? Because they're his. Be, and, and, and he's going to open this up. And he goes before them. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. There is a, there is a union, a communion, an intimacy, a love there. And, and what's interesting, verse 6 says this. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. What? You know, even today, a lot of people hear this. And, what? I don't, I don't get this. But later, Jesus would open their minds to understand the scripture, and they would. And then he would make it clear. Look at verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. All who came before me are thieves. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief came to steal and destroy. But not only is he the door, verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Lays his life down for the sheep. The sheep the father has given him. The sheep that he knows by name. The sheep that he's going to call. The sheep he's going to lead out. The sheep that he's all going to bring out. Are the sheep that he laid down his life for. No one took it from him. He's going to say he laid it down and he took it up again. Verse 14 says this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And I want you to know this. When you understand this word in the language of scripture, I know. That's not just a knowledge. That speaks of loving communion and intimacy. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. God says to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So when it, God says, I know my own, it's not just, I know who they are. Of course that, but it's I know them. I, I have a loving, intimate, experiential communion with them. It's glorious. And then, and my own know me. They have a loving, intimate, experiential communion with me. And it goes on. 
And verse, and I, and just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. But then he says these words: "I have other sheep that are not of this fold." In the days of his incarnation, he told his disciples, "Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of Israel." But as he fulfilled all righteousness, it's not only going to be the fold of Israel, but you know what else? From every fold throughout the world, every tongue, tribe, language, nation, and people. Indeed, the scriptures say it this way in Revelation chapter 9. I mean, chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and your blood ransomed for God. People. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests, and they will reign on the earth. So, but in conclusion, we see a Godward worldview in all things. Our utter dependence upon God, our dedication to Him, and a doxology, a glory to Him in everything. A Godward worldview. Secondly, God's word in all places. We are devoted to it, we are declaring it, and it is our delight duty to do so thirdly God's work among the nations Christ is the door he's the door he's the shepherd he's the one who died in his dying he delivered and in his delivering he's defended no one can pluck them out of his hand his father who gave them is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them out of his hand and so the ending mindset is God God's word and God's work. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord we are. Just amazed. And also broken. How easy it can be. In the course of our daily lives. For other things. To distract. When we ought be devoted. Lord in the even. So distracted those who speak of themselves as the church and even as servants of the Lord set aside the word of God for the words and works of men God we pray that you would help us to stand firm to stand fast to be watchful and act like men God may we be bold and may you stir us to greater love and good works for your glory in Jesus name we pray amen